Welcome to the Global Connection, a Tel Aviv University podcast. Journey with us as we discover how TAU's academic community and friends are engaging with and helping to shape this ever-changing world. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Global Connection. I'm your host, Dr. Anna Sajeki, and I am delighted to have in the studio with me today, Professor Justin Kami, who is chair of both the program in World Literatures and the program in Jewish Studies at Smith College in the United States. He is a liter- literary and cultural historian specializing in Yiddish and happens to be joining me today as he is also the on-site summer program director for the Naomi Prar Kadar International Yiddish Summer Program. And uh, he's also on the academic advisory board of the Jonah Goldrich Center for Yiddish Language, Literature and Culture. Um, and both the, the Yiddish program and the center are here at Tel Aviv University. Um, so welcome to the studio. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Although I'm a, a graduate of the Hebrew University one-year program, Ooh. I know I, I shouldn't say that, but okay. I've been I've been affiliated with Tel Aviv University now, I think, for 14 or 15 years. So it's okay. really great to be okay. here with you. Well, in truth, I think they do get on pretty well. I would hope so. Yeah, yeah. So it's okay. Well, well I approve of that. <laughs> Um, so I wanted to sort of start by um, going a little bit back into your your own academic journey. Um, so I I know that you did your PhD at Harvard in uh, and you focus on Yiddish um, studies as well as modern uh, Jewish literature. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about what drew you to focus on that? And uh, yeah. Well, we should probably tell our audience that we're both Canadian we to are. start off with, because we I think are. there's a story that okay. before I get to the United States and, and, and that graduate work, I think that the relationship between Yiddish in major centers like New York and what Yiddish was in places like Montreal or mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. other or Winnipeg, for instance, in Canada was quite different okay. given the differences between those countries. So I actually was drawn to Yiddish first at McGill. Uh, during my undergraduate studies, when I took a course just on general modern Jewish literature, and there was a Yiddish component to that, and then took a seminar uh, before I graduated, and, and then decided to continue. But for me, I was majoring in political science and Middle East studies, and I was very engaged with that work. And then suddenly, the experience of reading these texts, which contained everything within them, history, psychology, sociology, anthropology, religion, uh, really spoke to me. It sort of changed the course. It's, it's sort of an example of how in the humanities, if you stretch beyond your immediate boundaries, you can really be awakened right. to new and exciting things. Right. And that then sort of drew me into a field that at the time felt underserved okay. and perhaps not getting the, the attention it needed. Okay. Nowadays, Yiddish studies is very hot. Okay. And there's a lot of young students and a lot of uh, scholars who are entering into the field or who recognize the importance of the field. But in those days, it was still rather small. There was a long history of Yiddish studies mm-hmm. going back uh, at least a century, if not more. And there were certainly very well uh, and esteemed scholars of Yiddish studies. Uh, and it seemed like a place where I could make my mark. I always compared it in terms of sort of thinking what type of literature you want to study. Did I really want to you know, write the 10,000th PhD on Shakespeare or on Faulkner or on a well-known writer? Or did I want to write the first right. doctorate on some Yiddish writer who was just as deserving okay. and just as 
sort of important for his audience, for his readership, and I think also for our own. So that was really exciting for me as a young scholar to be in a field that um, where almost everything still needed to be done. Okay. You know, we okay. didn't have okay. biographies of the major writers. We didn't have bio, you know, histories of the major groups. We didn't have studies of some of the major exciting movements. Okay. So okay. this was. So it was a really small at the time professional community yes. um, in the literary Yiddish studies field. Um, do you feel like it's changed at all? I think it's changed in the sense that it's so much more theoretically uh, sophisticated. That is, it's much more in conversation with broader theoretical trends in the humanities and especially in literary and cultural studies than perhaps it was when I started. And that can be a really great thing. I don't think it's the be all and end all. I still think that sort of studying a text and knowing what you think about it without the intervention of these things is important. But uh, yeah, I think it's really exciting to bring Yiddish into conversation with the latest trends in what other people are doing in these fields, whether it be translation studies or whether it be the medical humanities or whether it be the environmental humanities. Yiddish has something to say and Yiddish literature has something to say about all these things in addition to what it has to say about Jewish experience over the past thousand right. years. Right. So, right. Okay. so one can sort of consistent, you know, as, as as they say, turn it over and over and all is contained within it. Right. And I think right. one, one can say that even about secular Yiddish literature, perhaps even more so. Okay. Okay. Well, you've done a really nice job of broadening out um, the applicability of, of studying Yiddish literature. Um, so I think I'm going to follow up with a really broad question. Sure. Um, which for our listeners, if you could even talk about just like the the history of the language and its evolution a little bit, um, especially as a, a transcultural language, um, you know, there's so many different Yiddish communities around the world, right. and there's a history and a present to that. Um, so, yeah, what if you could let us know more generally about sure. Yiddish a bit? So a lot of people think that Yiddish is a relatively new language, and in fact, Yiddish extends uh, back at least a thousand years. So. By my measure, that's not young. That's you know, fairly fairly well established. We say our linguists have uh, determined, uh, and most linguists agree that it sort of grew up in the Rhinelands of West Central Europe, which might be something of an intervention in terms of popular understanding of Yiddish as an Eastern European language. That is, we know that Jewish languages migrate with the Jews, right? They don't exist on their own. So uh, when the Jews migrate from the German lands to the east, that's when Yiddish really becomes uh, an East European language. And that's when it picks up its Slavic uh, okay. element. And then when the Jews leave Eastern Europe and then move to the Americas, whether that be the United States and the huge immigration or to Canada or to Mexico or to Cuba or to South America or to South Africa or to Australia, that's where we have this sort of broadening of the diasporic nature of what had always been considered one of many diasporic Jewish languages. So when when asking about sort of the broad questions about what Yiddish is and where it comes from, I think there's a couple of things we can think about. One is why do Jews develop diasporic languages of their own? That is, why do they not just borrow the language of the peoples among whom they right, live. Right. Uh, why do they write in Aleph Bess? Why mm. do they move you know, from right, right mm. to left instead of reading, uh, if that's the case, from left to right in, in, in other contexts? And Yiddish is one of many diasporic languages that Jews develop. So of course we have the classical uh, Hebrew and we have Aramaic and we have Rabbinic Hebrew, but we also have Judeo-German, Yiddish. We have Ladino, you know, Judeo-Spanish, we have Judeo-Arabic, we have Judeo-Persian, we have Judeo-Turkish, and the list goes 
on and on. So this is one of many languages that Jews develop uh, in order to be able to talk to themselves, to understand themselves, to develop their own curricula, perhaps not to be understood by others at other moments, perhaps to open up and bring other ideas into the Jewish world. That's one way of thinking about the development of Yiddish. But as we, we go on and think about its long history, there's a lot of assumptions that people make about Yiddish. So nowadays, in the early 21st century, perhaps most listeners would think of Yiddish as a language um, of radicalism, a language of progressive politics, a language of Jewish humanism, a language of perhaps anti-statehood, perhaps even a language that is anti-national, perhaps a language that is secular. And all those things may be true of Yiddish at certain points in its history, especially more recent history. But in fact, for most of its thousand-year history, Yiddish was the language of what one of the great linguists of, of Yiddish, Max Weinreich, called uh, Dera Hashas. That is, Yiddish is the language of very traditional Jewish community, the language of the Jewish masses. And it's only with the Jewish enlightenment, the Haskola in Yiddish, the Haskalah in Hebrew, that there are certain streams of the Haskalah that start to think about Yiddish as a way of Europeanizing, modernizing, and perhaps even secularizing okay. Um, okay. the Jewish people. Okay. And it sort of gets away from them. Okay. They, the, the more they write in Yiddish to try to show the Jews how backwards they are, right. the more the masses want more Yiddish, right. want more Yiddish literature. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, for myself, I, I'm not learning Yiddish right now, but I'm learning Hebrew. There's always time, right? There's, There's time. always time. There's a time. It could be the next one. Um, but for me, whenever I enter into a new language, it, it really feels like I'm entering into a bit of a new world, right? When you're thinking about the etymology of the different words, when you're thinking about the lo logic of that language, um, I feel like you've maybe partly even answered this question already, just in terms of the, the sheer complexity and evolution in different ways of Yiddish. But but if you were to say that Yiddish creates sort of a world or understanding of the world um, as a language, how would you how would you describe that word? Such a such a tough question. Maybe maybe we should go back to the 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 linguistic elements first. So oftentimes Yiddish has been those who oppose Yiddish for various reasons oftentimes talk about Yiddish as a jargon, as a jargon, as not a real language. And oftentimes they're comparing that through European romantic contexts to this idea of, of pure languages, that there are somehow pure languages and impure languages, and that Yiddish is an impure language. Well, of course, we know that one of the most impure, if we even use those terms, which don't mean anything, is English. Right? There's no such thing as a pure or an impure language or a beautiful or a less beautiful language. But Yiddish, in terms of its grammar, is a, you know, close to 70% Germanic. So it's Germanic in terms of vocabulary and grammar, about 20% Slavic, depending on where it is. And then, uh, you know, you have the rest of the elements are Lush and Koidish, so Hebrew, Aramaic, that give it its sort of Jewish flavor and context and ability to talk about those issues that are only, you know, related to Jewish experience. So when we think of Yiddish as sort of a component that brings in those three worlds, right? The, the, mm. the, the Slavic, the Germanic, and also the um, Semitic in terms of language families, we already see that there's something quite interesting going on there. The other issue about Yiddish that goes to the heart of your question is that for many um, centuries, Yiddish was, uh, in terms of a language hierarchy, Yiddish was gendered and was oftentimes seen gendered as female, as, okay. as, as woman, okay. because there was a sense that somehow Hebrew and especially Aramaic, the language of the study house of the yeshiva 
was the sort of masculine, masculine, masculine right? and that was the language right. of intellectualism, that was the language of study, that was the language of Torah, and Yiddish was the language of the domestic sphere or the everyday sphere, what we would call today, you know, the the, the, the secular sphere. But of course, that, that word didn't exist at the time. So it took Yiddish centuries to sort of get away from the idea that somehow it shouldn't or couldn't be taken seriously, that somehow it was only for ideas that didn't matter or experiences that didn't matter. But what this means is that over the centuries, that there's something paradoxical and really exciting about it, that as the more it was seen, especially by men, especially mm -hmm. by male intellectuals in the Haskalah, as somehow uh, feminine, the more it developed an audience, especially an audience of woman readers. Mm. So it's really one of, one of the most amazing things about Yiddish is that we can see that as it appeals to women readers over the century, they become one of the bases mm. for this literature that then eventually you know, becomes uh, mass uh, read. We know that that's not true. That's only a myth, right? Of course, everyone was reading Yiddish at the time, even those who said it was only... You know, a woman's language. Only right. a woman's language. Right. Right. And it all, e even the name Yiddish that we use today for this language, up until you know the very late 19th century, that wasn't used. There were writers, the most famous writer, Yiddish writer of all time, Sholem Aleichem, is writing in the 1880s to other writers, and he's referring to the language that he's writing in as jargon, as jar. So okay. it takes time for Yiddish, which also means Jewish, Right. To become concretized. And there are other other names for the same language, whether that be Mamaloshin, right, the mother tongue, whether that be Judeo-German, which is very scholarly, whether that be um, Teich or Viber Teich, which also has to also deals with the um, womanly aspect, whether that be Loshin Ashkenaz, the language of Ashkenaz. So even the name of Yiddish or the various names of Yiddish over time tell us a little bit about the history, the attitudes, and and, and certain arrogance okay. that was imposed okay. upon sort of where Yiddish stood right. within the larger right. family of right. languages that Jews could or would or should yeah. speak. And and I, I feel like it, it probably can be said about every language is you, you need to think about languages in the context of other languages, but with Yiddish especially so. Um, and, and you've even talked about this sort of the, the masculine versus feminine domain of Hebrew and Aramaic versus Yiddish. Um, so given we're, we're here in Israel and given Hebrew is the primary language here, I'm, I'm curious, what, what does Yiddish mean in Israel? So this is a new, uh, this is not, not a new, but a newish, a hot question. There's a okay. lot of scholarship now coming out about the experience of Yiddish, not first in the Yishuv and then in the post-state years and how Yiddish was treated. So, but let me go back even further than that. So I would say that when we, when we think of the late 19th and especially early 20th century in Hebrew, it's oftentimes spoken about as, as the period of Ariv Halishonot, the, the, the fight between languages, right? And those languages were Hebrew and Yiddish. And there was assumption that Hebrew was related to Zionism and Yiddish was related to diasporism. Of course, we know that there was a lot of Zionist work that was being carried out in Yiddish. And there was a lot of diasporic work that was being carried out in Hebrew. But people don't always want to, you know, listen to, to reality. They have these, these constructs in their imagination. We also know that most Yiddish writers were also fluent Yiddish speakers. All, most Hebrew writers were fluent Yiddish speakers and fluent Yiddish writers. And we have many writers who wrote in both languages interchangeably. 
We also know that many scholars early on said that this idea of separating the two languages would be like looking at the world or Jewish experience through only one eye. That is, you can do that, right? Of course, you can see with one, only one eye, but your perception is distorted. And that somehow, if you really want to be a scholar of the modern Jewish experience, whether that be by looking at historical sources or literary sources, you actually need both languages. That to study only Hebrew literature and to say, I'm not interested in anything that happened in Yiddish literature, or to say, I'm only interested in Yiddish literature, but know nothing about the development of Hebrew literature. In a way, you're not really talking about the interaction okay. that was so close among these languages and continues to be so close. And in fact, the building of modern contemporary Israeli Hebrew uh, owes a lot to Yiddish expressions and to Yiddish, the Yiddish speakers right. who were right. engaged with that. Right. Today, I think that the perceptions can always be, are always in movement, right? So nowadays, when people hear about Yiddish, not only in Israel, even in the United States with my students, oftentimes the first perception is that Yiddish is old. They forget about when Yiddish was young, or that Yiddish is victimized, or that Yiddish was murdered, or that Yiddish is only the domain of the religious, right? And of course, all of these things may have certain truths, kernels of truths in them, mm -hmm. but in terms of the reality, it's so much more complex. Mm -hmm. There are young people who are at the democratic protests nowadays mm -hmm. taking in Israel who are doing their protesting in Yiddish. Okay. And uh, so I think that as Israeli society matures, as we reach a different moment in the history of Zionist discourse, in the same way that in the United States, up until the late 1960s or in Canada, where we grew up, you could teach American or Canadian literature without including a woman, mm. without including black writers, without including native right. indigenous writers, without right. including any, anything that didn't seem at the time canonical mainstream. Just like you could do that, you can't teach that way anymore. No. Students would revolt. Right. And rightfully so. Right. And I think in the same way we're going to see that, and we are seeing that in Israel, that at a certain point, now that the hegemony of Hebrew is, you know, a fait accompli, no one is challenging Hebrew, we are starting to see the children and especially the grandchildren of those immigrant generations saying, wait a second, what about the Yiddish that we spoke? What right. about the Arabic right. that was lost? What about the Persian that was lost? What about the Spanish and Ladino that was lost? And I think that there's a growing interest in Israel okay. uh, now that Hebrew is so secure okay. to sort of de to, to destabilize Hebrew right. and recognize that this country has a significant number of multilingual, multiliterary um, traditions that need to be recuperated. So in the Yiddish summer program that I'm, I'm involved in right now, one of the things that I've been joking about, uh, but not totally joking, seriously, is is developing, you know, a t-shirt to match many of the t-shirts that are, that we see on the streets these days that say that there can be no democracy without Yiddish. Now, someone listening might say, I don't really understand what that means. There can be no democracy without Yiddish. Well, they say on these t-shirts, there can be no healthcare without democracy. There can be no academia without democracy. But I actually think that there can be no democracy without respect for multiculturalism. Mm -hmm. And Yiddish can become a symbol mm -hmm. for that multiculturalism. That is, if you want to be a country that is empathetic to difference, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that is not hegemonic in the way it understands 
its own cultural production and that allows different streams to be in conversation or even in competition with one another, then democracy relies on Yiddish and Arabic and all these other linguistic traditions, in addition, of course, to the wonderful culture that is Hebrew culture, mm -hmm. in order to retain its flexibility, its dynamism, its openness to the world. Uh, to me, that's what that 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 type of T-shirt would represent okay. if it existed. Okay. Well, maybe I, it's not too one difficult. One day, one day, we'll make a T-shirt. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um, but you you bring up a really great point, and I think in your in your research, uh, you do focus now a bit more recently on the cultural resurgence and reclamation of Yiddish. Um, and from my understanding, partly the summer program, you know, there, there's more and more interest in it. And, and so you're, you're seeing more people becoming engaged with with the Yiddish language. Um, and uh, I've read a bit of your work where you talk about um, in relation to English literature too, a sort of resurgence and reclamation of Yiddish. Mm -hmm. um, for so long, its representation in English literature has been related to loss. And now there's sort of this shift and it's about uh, reclaiming the language. Um, so, yeah, do you, can you talk about that a little bit more in terms of literature or just in general? Like, yeah. Are you really seeing that? I'm seeing it, but I also try to practice it in sort of a, a very conscious meta pedagogy. Okay. So even in my own courses, uh, I just published a, a big translation with McGill Queen's University Press of a Holocaust memoir. But now my next project is going to be not about the Khurban, not about Shoah, not about loss, but about Yiddish at its peak, uh, peak of production, uh, at its peak of dynamism. And I do the same thing with my courses. For every course that I teach on the Holocaust, I'll teach two courses on sort of Jews creating their own culture in order okay. to not skew the way we think either of Yiddish or we think of Jewish experience. Uh, but students are, yeah, students are really drawn to Yiddish. And I think for a variety of reasons. And we have to be honest about that as scholars. Some people are drawn to Yiddish initially because it's the anti-Hebrew. Or they see it as the, as the anti-Hebrew. That is, if you're a young diasporist or if you're opposed to certain a certain politics, maybe you'll find your address in Yiddish. Mm -hmm. There's another whole stream recently of people who are drawn to Yiddish who are very interested in feminist and queer theory. And then somehow see in Yiddish, because of its long history of, of, of being gendered, uh, a home for themselves um, that is in Jewish culture, but they can claim and shape uh, as their own. Some will come to Yiddish because they see in it an integrative possibility for reconnecting different chapters of Jewish history that were broken uh, quite radically and, and oftentimes violently and see it as the vehicle through which to rethread the sort of fabric that had been torn apart. Others will come into Yiddish because they recognize that uh, Yiddish is not dead. It's not even dying. In fact, Yiddish is growing in numbers. It may not be the language that it was in 1939, but no language and no people and no culture is the same language that it was almost 100 years ago, right? So there are Yiddish, there are children being born into Yiddish today. It's true that many of them who are being born into Yiddish are in ultra-Orthodox communities. So if you want to have a relationship with those ultra-Orthodox communities and to understand what's going on there, Yiddish can be a vehicle for that. Okay. Others will say, no, Yiddish is in a post-vernacular stage. That is, it's much more symbolic as opposed to vernacular in terms of being used. That is, Yiddish represents a symbol, Yiddish is an object of desire. 
Yiddish has become a fetish. So there's so many different avenues through which someone can enter the field of Yiddish and find their home there. And I think for the reasons that we talked about earlier, it's inconceivable now that, and this is not, this is obviously not only appropriate to Jews, especially for non-Jews. The most exciting things in the field, I think, are the growing number of students, especially from Germany and countries in Eastern Europe, who are turning to Yiddish because they recognize that you cannot do Polish studies mm. when at one point a third of your country was Yiddish speaking. If you want to be a, a historian of Poland and you want to write about certain questions, you need Yiddish, mm -hmm. right? If you want to be a scholar of the Ukraine mm -hmm. and you want to study multicultural literatures of Ukraine, you're going to need Yiddish. If you want to study certain linguistic realities of contemporary German, you're going to have to study Middle High German and Old, uh, Middle High Yiddish and Old Yiddish. That is, there's all of these reasons that people would be drawn to Yiddish um, apart from sort of the idea that it's, you know, this language that perhaps they heard or have a relationship with through, through grandparents uh, that was never passed down to them. Okay, okay, that's a great point. Um, with the, the International Summer Program in Yiddish, are you seeing that then? Do you really have people coming from all different backgrounds to yes, learn the language? absolutely. So we have students of different national and religious backgrounds. We have a whole cohort of students uh, with us from the, the country of Georgia, the Republic of Georgia. Uh, this year, we have um, students from 14 countries, okay. United States, Sweden, Cyprus, Georgia, Germany, Poland, uh, Ukraine, uh, and the list could go on. Uh, in not, no, there's no Canadian this year. No Canadian. I wave the flag for Canada, okay. but this year there's no Canadian. Okay. We also, of course, have um, this year students from Latin America as well. And we have one from um, uh, Argentina okay. representing the strong history of Yiddish uh, in Buenos Aires. Okay. So I see a lot of students coming. And I think this is part of the broader project of the Goldrich Institute under which uh, the program runs. So the director of that institute, Dr. Hanna Pauline Galai is a member of the literature department here, and she is the director of the institute and has generously allowed me to come in and help out and, and help her run uh, the program during the summer. But really, the program itself is the summer Yiddish language program is part of a broader effort to uh, make sure that Yiddish is part of the educational system and, and of higher, higher education studies here in Israel. And uh, the summer program, the Naomi Prabhu Kadar Summer International Summer Program, I've been with them since 14 years. It was founded uh, even before that by Professor Hannah Wirth Nesher here, who was an Americanist, mm -hmm. and Professor Avram Novershtern of the Hebrew University, and has always sought to bring Israeli students from different universities in Israel together with students from abroad. Okay. And I think that's really a unique program. There are other Yiddish programs in the world that are distinguished as well. But our program puts those two groups in conversation. So the Israeli scholars who are studying Yiddish here uh, at, an, at an Israeli university with students who perhaps are studying Yiddish in Eastern Europe and, and, and engage with it in a different way. And with students who are coming at it from America, whose experiences are that of sort of immigrant, immigrant socialist activists who then lost languages. Right. And all of those students together in a classroom produce a really neat and I think exciting environment. And the reason I keep coming back summer after summer is because I can't imagine Israeli universities not having a Yiddish summer program for Israeli students. Okay. 
I mean, I think that I think that it's critical for the state. And I know this isn't a state program, but in my own mind, right. that, that, that this, it does have symbolic value. And when our students walk around the streets of Tel Aviv carrying a bag that says that they're studying in this Yiddish program, people ask them, You're you came to Israel to study Yiddish? Why are you studying Yiddish? I didn't know that there was a program in Yiddish. What, what drew you to it? It's also a conversation starter. And it allows people, even encourages people, forces people to recognize the presence of Yiddish in Israel, the long history of it. We have multiple Yiddish institutions that exist right here in Tel Aviv. We just took our students last Friday on a six-hour tour in the heat to Yiddish destinations in the north that Yiddish writers wrote about at the turn of the century, all the way up through 1948. That is, there's exciting Yiddish literary sites here in Israel. One doesn't only have to go to Poland right. or to Ukraine or to New York or to South America. There's a, there's a long history here, and it's up to us to help shape and, and present that for students. So this becomes sort of one of the joys of coming from abroad and getting to sort of meet students from who are, who are unlike the students I get to teach on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you have a highlight of your time here so far with the, the Yiddish program, summer Yiddish program? Well, the, the tour to the north uh, with one of our teachers, uh, who also is a tour guide, was great. We're going to uh, Beit Ariela, to the Gnazim archive, to look at their... Yiddish collection. We've had several concerts, including a concert with Miriam Tukan, who's a well-known Israeli uh, singer, and she sang songs in Arabic and in Hebrew and in Yiddish. And also one of our own students, Leah Kalish, another professional singer, presented at that same concert. So we try to complement the morning learning of Yiddish language at all different levels. We begin at the very beginners and go all the way to an advanced seminar. Uh, with a rich afternoon cultural component. So we'll have lectures and conversation classes and opportunities to go to movies and opportunities to go out. Just yesterday, students went on a two-hour walking tour in Yiddish okay. of Yiddish sites in Tel Aviv. And even that, I think, more than for the students who are getting a lot out of it, what's so interesting, I think, is looking at the people looking at them doing the tour in Yiddish. Right. Right. These Israelis right. going, what are these students yeah. So doing, it's speaking doing, Yiddish out in the street. It, it's, yeah. To me, it's also making a statement. It's, totally. It's, 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 it's doing something really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's engaging in cultural mm -hmm. work. The mm -hmm. other night, one of the highlights was one of the greatest of Yiddish poets and writers who founded one of the most prestigious journals in Yiddish studies. Um, we went to his house okay. where he used to live, met his daughter. Okay. And we had students, 30 students standing outside of the entrance looking at the plaque on the building wall, singing songs, reading his poetry, meeting with his daughter. As people are entering and exiting the same building in which he lived and worked, perhaps never having read him because he was a Yiddish writer and not a Hebrew writer, and sort of pausing curiously, why are all these students here? Right. Why are they not speaking in Hebrew? Right. What are they reading? Right. I mean, this, this aspect of movement of Yiddish as an afterthought or Yiddish as a curiosity to Yiddish as something that's deeply rooted and substantial, mm -hmm. I think is part of the work that the program is doing. Okay. Well, I have to say it sounds like an amazing program on so many different levels. Um, so Justin, I have to thank you for being here today and telling to me in. a bit more about it and, and talking about the language Yiddish with me. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Sure.